Guys, it's great to be here today, uh, this evening. Just take a deep breath um, and breathe. We're going to do some looking around us uh, this evening. Um, just on, on journeys, um, we all have a life journey. Unfold has been my word this year. I tend to hone in on a word and dwell on it for, for a season. Unfold has been my word this year. And our, as our lives are unfolding, it, it struck us recently, lots of you know Jim Hunter, who was here a long time ago. Jim discipled my husband, Nathaniel, and he married us. His daughter prayed when we couldn't get pregnant. We were told you will never have children. And we were due to go back to Bangladesh. Adoption just wasn't on the cards. Um, and we were at a wedding with Jim, spent the weekend with him. Um, he put us in touch with his daughter, Karen. And she prayed for us that we would get pregnant and, and have a child. Uh, and so it was Micah. Um, and Karen said when she prayed for us, he is a special baby. He is going to change things. And it's been oddly strange to come back here. We never imagined that we would have been in Orangefield, but lives just keep unfolding, don't they? And lives are unfolding into each other's lives as they unfold. And I just want to pause, and I wonder where your life is unfolding into. And as our lives unfold together as a community, as a family of God, what God is unfolding in this place and this evening. As we read the Gospels again and again, the disciples and the Pharisees used people with disability as a faceless object of discussion and theology, and we're not doing that this evening. I refuse to do that. And so if you love someone who has disability, I'm going to call it disability. I know that some of you don't identify with that with, with your child. Maybe it's just a more special needs or another sensory need or something like that. I'm going to call disability. I'm sorry if, if that grates on you, but be, let's be gracious. Um, I'm going to ask you if you love someone who lives with a disability or special needs, just hold them out in your hand right now in this space together. because they are known and seen by the living God. Maybe you don't love some, maybe you work in a sector that is involved in serving people who live with a disability. I'm going to ask you to hold that sector out this evening because we never open scripture in a vacuum. We open it in the middle of a society and a culture. And so, Spirit, in the middle of where we are in our unfolding and who we are in our unfolding, as we are this evening, just come and be who you are and do your thing. Uh, we need you. I am not going to give you the answer. Often I'm invited to talk about this in, in various ways. I am not giving any answers tonight. I'm sorry, I'm going to ask and give you more questions to ask. Um, what my journey has been in this um, has largely just been through Micah and then also linking into the work we did in Bangladesh and mission and kind of unfolding those paths together. But where I feel God is calling me and asking me to go to is more about the church what do we learn about the church when we look at the church and when we read scripture through a little lens of disability and we put this on here and how can we be the church and so as we read these words of life in this covenant family of god we ask for him to speak and stir and disrupt and disturb us that the kingdom would come in its beauty we're reading from luke 14 this evening um so from verse 1, uh, and we'll just read, we'll skip a, a little bit um, as we go. One Sabbath when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, behold, we're coming back to that. There was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, 
Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And he took the man and healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull them out? They couldn't reply to those things. Skipping down to verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or the brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I have to go and see it. Can I have an excuse? Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go and see them. Have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came, reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, go out quickly, go to the streets and the lanes of the city, bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said, well, go out again into the highways and hedges this time, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled." For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The chapter goes on then, um, talking about the cost of discipleship. This is a really beautiful story, isn't it? It's a feel-good story, if you're reading it with our Northern Irish lens. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've seen that film, The Blind Side or Annie. Um, I mean, is there anyone over the age of 40 who just didn't live on Annie when they were smaller? I have watched that film so many times, again and again, I could play a part in it. Uh, and, but it looks kind of like this Daddy Warbucks, compassionate to the poor person, bringing them in to make them rich. But that's not what it is. It's more than that. And to get at its real meaning, we need to look at this story as part of whose story it really is. It is God's story. And so this is a story, a parable, within a story, within a story, within a story. So our parable is a little nugget that Jesus taught to explode our imaginations. Luke 14, this is an actual moment in Jesus' life, a real story in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Luke acts, two-part book, to be taken together. Uh, that, he has his own story. People often ask, who are you looking forward to meeting most in heaven? Like Jesus, for me, then Luke. I love Luke's writings. He is passionate about social justice. It's not just the gospel is for everyone, but the gospel community must have everyone in it. And this is part of God's big, beautiful story that takes a perfect creation and humanity that live together in harmony. It was broken and then put back together in Christ. And we're going to look at that story within the story in Luke 14. So if we just look at the structure here, verses 1 to 6, we've got a healing. Verses 7 to 11, commentary on how guests were trying to fight for the best seat. Verses 12 to 14, instructions on who to invite. Verse 15, this throw-out comment about the messianic banquet. 16 to 24, then the parable of the great banquet, and 25 to 33, the costly following of Jesus in his upside-down kingdom. Now, verse 15 is the focus and the theme of this story. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, or won't it be great when we're all at the messianic feast in the future? Now, this is really important. We can't understand the parable without understanding what this was. This story was set in the Sabbath ritual. It started um, in the evening about six o'clock when they went, they gathered in homes for the special Jewish meal. And they remembered what happened in the past to 
look forward to what would happen in the future, that promise of the kingdom coming and the king coming. And the messianic banquet, the feast of the kingdom, was everything that the Jews were waiting for, still is. They still gather for their Sabbath, and they still kick off their liturgy by saying, won't it be great when we all eat bread at the kingdom feast? That was like worship started here. If you want to translate it into Orangefield, it's probably something like, you're all so welcome to be here. First line, it's begun. And given the weekly rhythms and practices that Yahweh had given to them, it was to keep the community real and right and on track. They practiced every week. They rehearsed every week. This is who they were. But how they were doing their liturgy, their act of worship, was completely missing the point. They took this feast together to look back to what Yahweh had done for them, to look forward to what God would do in them again and setting up of his kingdom. And they were doing it wrong. It was completely missing the point of what it was. It was detached. It was detached from real people's lives out in the streets. The man with dropsy. It was detached from the essence and life of the Jewish community. The Jewish community in Hebrew theology is supposed to be a most, the most non-hierarchical faith community. Everybody on a level, everybody together. They're climbing seats, looking for self-importance, social climbing. It was detached from the heart of God for the vulnerable. They used their positions to suit their own agendas. But this is what scares me. It was detached from Scripture itself. And so instead of these practices, these acts of worship changing them, bringing them into God's story, they took God's story, they took Scripture, and squeezed it into their agenda, their lenses, their priorities and preferences. Now, that line, won't it be great when we're all together at the Feast of the Kingdom? The Feast of the Kingdom is talked about throughout the Hebrew Bible, throughout the Old Testament. There's a feast talked about all the time. Isaiah is full of it. And throughout these passages, you, as you piece them together, there's different descriptors of it. Now, it was not a Weight Watchers-friendly banquet. Everywhere it's talked about, it was fatty foods. It was luxurious. It was abundance. It was going to be in the future. Suffering and death are going to be ended it's going to be an earth, a transformed earth. It was a blessed state, lavish amounts of food and drink. It centered on the Son of Man. There was fellowship with him and with others. And now his rule was going to be over all the earth. And it was going to include all people. Gentiles were going to be there. And they were going to be a part of the feast. Now, 700 years after Isaiah wrote... This inclusive, beautiful face that they were waiting forward to had changed quite a bit. In between the time of Isaiah's prophecies being recorded and the time that Jesus spoke, there had been the exile. And when they came back from exile into the land, into the temple, and they rebuilt it under Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra especially, they said, right, we've got to keep the law. We are keeping anything sinful out of here. And that was the lens that they read scripture and they read and they did their practices through. The book of Enoch talks about the messianic feast and says, but the angel of death will be present to destroy those Gentiles. The banquet hall will run with their blood. Believers will have to wade through it in order to reach the table. The Qumran community said, it's not just the Gentiles who are out. If you've got a disability, you're out too. No one can attend the banquet who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. And these kind of came from the Levitical laws for the priests that they had to be completely perfect. Now, by first century, Isaiah's vision of the inclusive, beautiful banquet for all people where everything would be gone, suffering would be gone, was completely obscured by the people's prejudices. I mean, what the flip? 
The vision of this kingdom for all people, for justice, for abundance, had completely been twisted and corrupted by Jews into doing what they wanted to do with this. Inviting people with a disability into the kingdom feast, like Jesus does here, was not just, oh, that's nice, we daddy war box kind of thing to do. This was a complete disruption and totally abhorrence to them. It was shocking. Into this cultural setup where scripture had been twisted and corrupted, Jesus came in and turned some tables over. This time, not literally, because Jesus did turn tables over. And actually, when you look at what happened in the temple when Jesus flipped the tables, it wasn't because money was being exchanged on the Sabbath. That's our Northern Irish good living Protestant lens on it. It was because the Gentiles and the women were excluded from the house that was to be the prayer house for everybody. Exclusion because of privilege. And after Jesus sees his host and disciples treating a one disabled man on the street as less than a human being, going into their community of faith, starting the act of worship that they had been given by God, wouldn't it be great when we are all in the feast of the kingdom? Jesus throws a table as he's sitting at the dining table and he says, you want to talk about the kingdom feast? I will talk about the kingdom feast. And he tells this parable. So who's in the parable? Who's out in the parable? And what are the boundaries in between these two groups? Well, the ones who are in are the invited guests. They are people of privilege. Just the excuses that they give, they are the social A-lists. They own land, they've bought a field, they've got a way of making a living, they've got oxen, they've got status in society, they've been able to get married. Now, the host was also in this crew. He was also the trendy guys. Um, and he throws this lavish party, and it's a banquet that's abundant. There's loads of food, loads of guests. He's the host, master of a whole household with servants. Now, there's a Middle Eastern cultural thing going on with all these excuses, and we can't come anymore. And we don't see it if we just read this with our Northern Irish lens. You've got to do a bit of work behind the text. Now, I only see it because we trained in Eastern culture, honor, and shame when we went to Bangladesh. You read this in Bangladesh, people are laughing in their chairs because they know exactly what's going on that we miss. It's all about social status. There's a social game playing going on of honor and shame. And the Muslim world is completely dominated by this. Actually, if you read Jane Austen books or watch her movies, they're dominated by honor and shame too. You do one thing wrong, you are out and you're not getting invited to that party. You will not be asked to call at that house. And thinking of a banquet, in Northern Ireland, if, we inv if, you, if I invite you to my house or to my wedding or to my party, that's kind of like, you're special to me. I'm honoring you. In the Eastern culture, if you pop into my house, you honor me. If I invite you and you turn up, you honor me. And I saw this in Bangladesh again and again. <laughs> If you watch I'm a Celebrity, I see it happening in the public square and the social uh, media things. The status of being in one's identity and their social cred is all at the hands of other people if they want to give you the social cred back again. Now, Jesus' audience would be intrigued by this story, like my Bangladeshi friends were, because they understand what's going on and they're hanging on Jesus' word. What's going to go on? What's going to happen to this guy here? What's he going to do? How is he going to get his honor back? He needs to invite those other cool people to his banquet. He needs to say, stuff you guys. I'm going even better here. And I'm going to, if they come to my house, I'm going to get my social cred and honor back here. But he, they, the, the excuses of the guests weren't real. They had publicly insulted him, and he was out. Now, when we look at who's out here, verse 21, they're in the streets and the lanes of the city. They're where people would be expected to be begging. Alleys, they're the more hidden places, people who maybe weren't even allowed to beg. 
And then in verse 23, when the servant says, there's still room, he says, get out and get some more and make them come in here. Highways and hedges, they are the ones actually outside the city. They're not even allowed in because of their cleanliness issues. And I wonder, does Jesus talk about the streets, the alleys, outside and the hedges? Because actually they just walked those places and they'd seen that man. Jesus makes it real for people. We read this and it's real for us. We connect it to real life situations. And so there's the inside, there's the outsiders, the boundaries in between. Part of the boundaries are just location. Don't come near us. They are there. We are here. But actually, there's more of a, of a boundary. It's the moral framework. It's their theology. They were on the outside because they had an impairment. They had a disability. So they weren't allowed on the inside. And in that culture, that belief, and it's the same. In Bangladesh, we saw, again, Asia, the work I did with disability there. It's all the same. We have a medical understanding. Well, this is what's caused autism, or this, or this, or this. There they don't ask, well, what's happened and what can we do to fix it? They say, who did this to me? Who cursed me? What have I done that God is punishing me? And we see Job wrestle with this. We see it in the Psalms. We see in John 9 when the disciples say, who sinned that that man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parent? Who's God punishing here by giving them a disability? And so if you had a physical disability or uh, any kind of disability that could be seen, you were out because it meant you had something in here that God was punishing you for, and everything was to keep sin out of the community. Now, the people themselves had a boundary on them, because they just, it was beyond their imagination that they could actually come into a banquet like this. It was like, no, you know I can't come, I'm not going. When we lived in Bangladesh, uh, we had a lady who came, she worked in our house in the mornings, we always told her to come at the table and eat with us. She never once did. She just knew, that's not where I sit. She knew her boundaries. We used to go and sit and eat in the kitchen with her then. And the master says, bring them in, because they need to be convinced that it's actually possible and that the invitation is actually real for them. Whenever we take it into the church, we don't just take it to the church. I'm going to just spend a few minutes talking about our Northern Irish culture and society because the church is part of that culture. We inhabit a different culture. Well, we have to look at the ground that we're standing in when we open this and when we think of the church because just like Jews in first century Palestine, culture had infused and corrupted what they were doing with their text and with their scripture. Culture does the same thing to us. And we've got to be aware to it and alert to it. And so there are in-out boundaries in Northern Irish culture. There's locational boundaries between people who have a disability um, and those who don't. In the last 15, 20 years, a massive shift in social health and education provision has happened. So that we're now seeing in society and community-based care an increased shared spaces, people who would have just been thrown into an institution um, back in the day. Um, I'm watching Call the Midwife with my daughter, and we are, she is disturbed by what happened 60, 70 years ago with children who were born with a disability. And so there's more men, women, and children just out and about and, and in the places. There's more issues being discussed in society at policy level, at service level. There's more public bodies and charities and agencies. It's, it's, it's more, it's out there more but there's still boundaries. One of the biggest boundaries is the boundary of attitude and perception, how people perceive people with disability. And it's all about our cultural worldview. It's about this little lens that we don't even know that's, that's within us. It makes us see the world in a certain way. So when we went to Bangladesh, we had to do training for a Muslim and an Eastern worldview so that we understood how people ticked, how they saw the world, how they saw themselves, how they would see us. And as we learned about a Muslim cultural worldview, we were like, huh, we've got one too. We never talk about it. It's like swimming in water. 
You're just breathing in air. It's just there. And so the cultural worldview that we have tends to be set up to perceive people with disability as lesser kinds of human beings. One worldview is called a utilitarian worldview. It's kind of like a person's worth is based on what we can do, what we can achieve, what we can produce, criteria of success, an education, a job, a house, a lifestyle. Will they contribute to society and community or will they be a drain on it? Now, Tabitha did her AQE last year um, and we put her through that and chose a school. If you inhabit that space, you will be very acutely aware that we inhabit a utilitarian worldview way of thinking. Everybody told us, no, 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 get her the good school, get her tutoring, get her this, get her this, she's got to be this. What do you want to be when you go up? This is the water that we inhabit. Now, we chose to resist it in different ways and make different choices. Individualism. Now, individualism is just kind of the opposite of living in Bangladesh. The way I kind of explain it to people is, in Bangladesh, your marriage is arranged because it's not just about you falling in love with that person and having a happy life. It's about two families coming together and making something sustainable, making the community all work together, group. Individual, well, I love him, we'll get married. I make my choices for me. Now, there's an intensifying of individualism that is saying, do you know what? People have told you stuff about you. You don't need to do what they say. You do you. You define you. You determine yourself. You get ahead in life by self-expressing. You get ahead of life because you've got self-agency. Make it happen for yourself. There's nothing that you can't be when you grow up. Tabitha said that. I was like, I can think there's quite a few things that you won't be when you grow up, love. There, we live in this era where it's all about you. Just push yourself forward. You can do this. Consumerism. We have the power and capability to choose and get things. If you have more than just enough clothes in your wardrobe, I mean to wash and wear and have a good outfit for church or something, if you've got enough to put in a bag to give to manna, you are a consumer. Guilty. If you are like me and you go into Ikea and you have this subconscious zoning out lens, there is something here to make my life better and easier and you come out with the scissors and the garlic press and you know, the, the new drawers and the shelves that your husband has to build. You're a consumer. And we tend to consume things that will make our life easy and better. And we're living in a culture that is built with more technological developments, more medical developments, and we are choosing, nearly zoning out, to choose a life that's comfortable and easy and to avoid suffering at all cost. And so now we're seeing we've got medical technology to eradicate suffering. And I mean, that's good, isn't it? It's good, but it's dangerous. Because the whole narrative about children who are unborn, who have a, a, a diagnosis of a severe fetal impairment, not even severe, it's kinder to them not to let them live this life. We are defaulting into a, if there's any suffering involved, just cut it out. We've got the technology to do it. Euthanasia is coming back on the scene. Public services are being slashed. Learning disability and COVID, they were literally, people who were brought into hospital with a learning disability, they had to fight to not get a DNR on them because, oh, well, you know, their life would be better if it wasn't lived. This is their, their happy end. We are living in this, in this era. Outside in, in our society, in our community, there are sometimes are hard attitudes that my friends and I have come across. Now, we have kids. Our kids were kicked. Micah and the peers, the, the group, I've got about 15, 20 friends really good friends who I've just lived with in this journey over the last um, 15 years. And um, we were the ones who were kicked out of the normal National Autistic Society group because our kids were too complex and difficult to manage. We had to start our own. Um, and my friend was sitting on the train from Bangor. Her son would have got the train all day long, all day long, back and forward, Bangor to Belfast, Bangor to Belfast. 
And he was sitting on the train, um, happy, and he was doing his stimmy thing. And a guy gets on, and he sits down, and he said, oh, would you move? I've had a hard day at work. I do not need to sit beside a child like that. It is a really common experience for my friends and I to just be, you know, in the grocers and Tesco where I get chatting to the people and I've gotten to know people around Ballyhackamore and have a good chat. And they say to me as they get to know me, as they kind of feel more comfortable in asking about Micah, do you know, I take it you don't believe in abortion. Now, they don't think I should have aborted him. They just think, oh, wow, you didn't abort him. Jill talks about she did some work um, for the Trust and gathering information about people's experiences. And she'll tell you about people, mothers, who were given the choice to abort their child. And they said, you know what? They're cute when they're wee, but when they grow up, they're big monsters. We're living in this world, in this era. And there's a rising story about disability happening in culture. It's progressive. And it sees these ins and outs and the dehumanizing that's going on. And they've come up with their own answer to it. This is, I just find this so interesting. They say... There's no such thing as disability. You have been told you're disabled. This is so-called disability. If you remember the McCain's chip ad um, a few years ago, so-called love, it talked about so-called disability. It's not real. They told you it was a thing. It's built off the back of transgender and sexuality activism and theories, which gets rid of the binaries here and there, male, female. There's no male and female. It's all a wee bit of a mixture. There's no able disabled. It's all just kind of a different way of being a human. Um, and we're not allowed to talk about this experience of being disabled as being a challenge or being difficult or having grief or struggle because you can do, you can do. I look at the, um, the Don't Screen Us Out campaign, the Heidi Crowder stuff, and I just think you are playing the same cultural game because they're saying, don't abort us. We have the right to live because we can do everything that you guys can do. We can act and model and have a job. You can get married. I can be as cool as you can. And I celebrate that there, there's a breaking down of barriers here, but I fear for my son because 10 years of this disability being presented in society through TV, through Blue Peter, through um, Carnation Street, that's going to be disability. And you're going to look at my son and Jill's daughter, Rebecca, who cannot self-define, who cannot self-assert, who cannot self-identify and self-express. And guys, euthanasia is going to be here in 40 years, and I'm not going to be about to protect my son the way I've done for the past 14 years. And it concerns me. They are playing the same socially climbing game as the rest of society. And can I just be a bit cheeky and ask for you to pray for me? Because I've seen this loophole in the human rights system and through Tabitha's book that she wrote, I found this entry with the Children's Rights Center and they're really interested in this little gap that I've seen and we're having a conversation. We're doing an event in February. I don't know where it will go or what it will do. I'm sharing faith here. I don't know where God's going with it, but I'm just holding it out to him. But as I speak in these places, in the middle of disability activism and disability theory and children's rights, and I speak in real raw situations of the, this new NAS group that we set up. I've spent the last 10 years of my life up in West Belfast in people's homes because uh, those are my friends. That's just where it's functioned and a charity that helps the more complex kids. And I share my faith there. And they say, that sounds lovely. Show me a church that lives it out. And so we move now to the Christian church and we look at the ins and the outs and the boundaries in between. So who's in and who's out? At New Horizon, um, this is some of the unfolding that I just kind of go, God, what are you doing? New Horizons several years ago, um, it was the same year that uh, a lady called Kerry offered to be a carer for Archie. And I bumped into Lara in the queue. Uh, she had two girls, or a girl with curly hair. I had Tabitha. I thought, oh, she could be my friend. Um, and a disabled child. What else do you need? Um, 
But God was on the move because Kerry came and she said, I could just be a carer. Now, I had phoned New Horizon every year for four years to say, I've got this kind of son. My husband's here all week doing the mission, but we can't come. Is there anything you can do? No. And I said, my friend of mine said, do you know what? Just do something about it, Donna. Stop moaning about it and do something. So I wrote a proposal to New Horizon. Board have taken it. TO is working on it. SU have done a brilliant job. And I did a seminar at this first time where parents were actually be able to be there. Their kids were in the same session. And I did a seminar. And I said, look, why are you here? What do you want to get out of this? And they said, a lady stood up and a couple of ladies kind of backed her up. And they said, do you know, this is so amazingly kind that New Horizon would do something like this for our kids. I can't actually believe that I can come here. Isn't it amazing? Before I could even respond, a church leader stood up and he said, I am sorry, but you're wrong. This is not kind. This is not amazing. You should not feel grateful to us for doing this. You should be admonishing us. This is in our DNA of who Jesus Christ is and where he's leading us to. Shaming us for taking so long to get around to it. Jill and I have gone around churches together and seen parents and grandparents weep on a Saturday morning. They don't even have the words to put around how they're feeling. The big question when it comes to special needs and disability is how do we include people in what we do here in our communities. We're going to just pause and dig into some theology about personhood and church and first ask, well, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to belong together as humans in a different way? What does it mean to be church? What's stopping us from belonging? Why do we even have to ask this question, how do we include? What are the boundaries? And as I've gone on this journey and thought about it personally as a mom and thought about it as a Christian digging into some theologies, two major theologies that are the boundaries for us here. Firstly, it's how we read Scripture. It's the lens that we've put on Scripture and extracted how we understand gospel and church and personhood. So first, the image of God now, Tabitha was age three. This is my daughter. I mean, honestly, she sees things, and I'm like, my life. She comes out of her um, first block of junior church classes. Like, she's three, honestly. She's turning four in October in this, in this phase. And she came out, gets into the car, and she just says, as Tabitha does, mm, Micah doesn't have the God stamp, you know? And I'm like, what? Yeah, the God stamp, image of God. Micah doesn't have it because... He doesn't make beautiful things, creative. He doesn't think clever ways, rational. And he doesn't like to make friends with people, relational. If you open a systematic theology about the image of God, those are the three things that it will tell you what it means to be a human being. And my three-year-old daughter was able to say, it's wrong, because I know my brother, and I know he's a human being. We read scripture through the lens of being able-bodied, able-minded people. And the people that we read do understand the Bible. They're also able-minded, able-bodied people who read the Bible through the same little lens. And they've come up with these theologies that have started from the beginning of the Christian theologizing, theologizing history. They start with our human capacities to understand God. And so they say, well, we know what it is to love but God's love is so much bigger. We can do things. We can think stuff. We know stuff. But God is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He can know so much more. He can do so much more. And the categories that they start with here are all positive human experiences. Experiences that my son doesn't have. And so if we believe that an person is made in the image of God because they are a human being, full stop. Then we know that Micah and Rebecca have the image of God within them. We just need to look for it in a different way. Now, my son is extremely vulnerable. I mean, if you know me, you'll know that he's been found in his nappy at not Presbyterian Church. I don't know how my son is still alive. Honestly, he's got a swarm of angels hovering after him. Um, he is so very vulnerable. 
He's a two to one most of the time. And I wonder, can we see God? Can we take vulnerability in Micah and go, well, God chose to be vulnerable again and again and again through creation, in the cross, in the church. God chose to be vulnerable in this world as a human being. What about dependent on other people? Needing a high level of support all the time. Micah and two carers. Well, God is a triune God. He does not exist on his own. He exists, Father, Son, Spirit. And if you read anything in the Gospel of John, you will know they are so dependent on each other. The Father sends, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit intercedes. It's, they're so dependent. And God has made us as a church to be dependent on one another. We do not bear God's image by what we can do. Beware of any Christian teaching that celebrates the human being as amazing without talking about our limitations as well. That's just another version of humanism. And it's the very fact that we exist by human beings that makes us made in the image of God. God's nefesh, his breath that breathes life into each one of us, sustains us and animates us. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are called as God's people. I'm going to go to that word that was in here in verse 2. Behold, there was a man before him. We are called to behold one another and to see each other as unique, image-bearing people of God. And you might find that if you behold Micah and Rebecca and Archie and others long enough, they become the meeting point for a very different kind of encounter with Jesus than you could have imagined. For me, on my journey, I had a really powerful encounter in Mark chapter 9, the story where the father brought his son to be healed. The son was running into fire and water all the time. I was like, that is my God. And the disciples couldn't heal him. They just argued about them, and Jesus comes down to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he doesn't just go, healed. He sits down beside the father, and he says, how long has your son been like this? Jesus was beholding my son and standing alongside me. I did a lot of theology from that point, digging into disability theology. Jill helped me along the way. Um, together, we all started Teo. But it wasn't just the theology of it. At the same time, this healing. And I, I went on a journey. I went and talked to Brother David Jardine and different prayer ministries, talked about healing explored that. That was another fascinating journey for me. Uh, but at the same time, without any theological words, without any theological reading, a family drew near us in church. A family of um, three teens and uh, parents, Brian and Heather, Connor, Katie and Ben, they imaged Micah at their dinner table. They loved us. They jumped on the trampoline. Second, theological boundary is a small gospel. Our dominant Northern Irish gospel is of what God has done in Christ to save my sinful soul for a future judgment and go to heaven. Church is therefore a wee weekly vitamin pill, a wee fill-up station to go until you get to, to go to heaven. Mission is only to evangelize people. And so we do social action or we do compassionate acts of mercy to poor people. We are good people who do kind things to poor people. And when we look at the first century Judaism and say, what the flip, Tom Wright says the early church would be looking at us, Paul would be looking at this gospel and saying, what the flip, guys? God has done so much more than that. The gospel is the good news that a whole new way of being, a justice, a rule and reign of the kingdom, of abundance of good things and a good way of being together has been put in place now. Jesus didn't just die to forgive my sins and your sins and your sins and your sins. Jesus died to make us one and to make us one with the church in Africa and to make us one with 
people who we are divided socially along different boundaries and borders. If the Spirit has brought me back to God and knitted me together with Christ, and he's done the same to you, then the Spirit has knitted and stitched us together. This is not an alternative Christian version of the golf club. We are one body and one people. I see the depth of understanding of that really lacking in the Northern Irish Church. There is a koinonia fellowship that Spirit has birthed between us that is beautiful. Paul calls it the koinonia oneness. And it changes everything. It changes how we deal with social divisions that are out in culture. In Paul's time, those social divisions were Jews and Greeks, men and women, and slaves and slave owners. And he says, in Christ, they're one. They're all together. And I wonder, in this culture, if those social divisions that God has stitched together in the spirit in Christ are nationalist, unionist, working class, middle class, secondary school, grammar school, Labour Conservative, Democrat, Republican, Russian, Ukrainian, able and disabled. Because of the cross, oneness has been done to us and over us. And so when we ask that question, how do we include? We just live it out. We love it, we protect it, and we live it out. Won't it be great when we all share in the kingdom feast? Well, do you know what? We can now get a little taste and glimpse of it. Now, there's two key problems, I'm nearly done, that have to be addressed before we even talk about people with disability, before we talk about inclusion, and it's here in this parable in the banquet. I often ask when I'm teaching this, who do you identify with in this parable? I'd sometimes get people to raise their hand, and often in the good Northern Irish Evangelical Church, we're the hosts. We do kind things to poor people and we invite them in on a Thursday afternoon for two hours. We pair up with them in our coffee shops and our buildings. We are not the host in the banquet of the kingdom. We are the guest. We are the broken ones sitting at the table of the king. When we identify as the host, we immediately put up the boundaries between them and us. When we identify as the host, we take the place of God and we forget who we are. All of us, able, disabled, middle class, working class, whatever, we come empty-handed to the table of the king. We bring nothing to the table that he hasn't already given us. We bring our shame, our limitations, our vulnerability and brokenness. When I bring these to the banquet of the king, I can hide them. You don't need to know about them. I am grateful for people who've drawn close and I share them with. When my son brings his limitations and vulnerability, he can't hide it. And so you see it. The first thing we've got to do if we're going to break down boundaries is to realize that we're all guests sitting at this banquet table. We think we carry people with a disability to the table. They carry us into a deeper abundance of the table of the king. Let's be really clear about this. The reason that this is a different kind of banquet is because he is a different kind of host. He is not a daddy Warbucks who brings in lovely little orphan Annie into his mansion and compassion, along with the president and Miss Hannigan and the Arab butler on the elephant with the feather bow and they're tap dancing and it's lovely and fun. That is not what's going on here. Annie was brought into Daddy Warbuck's house. He made her one like him. He gave her a nice dress to wear. She lived in his big house. His values did not change. Now, I told you that I could recite every line of Annie. I'm a businessman. I love money. I love power. I love capitalism. I always have. I always will. He still does. He hasn't changed. 
He's just brought someone in to be kind, you know, and do something. It's a very different kind of kingdom that this is talking about here. Now, the host was on the inside, the A crew, the social cool people, and he was playing the social games until he got kicked out. He was climbing the ladder, seeking the platform and the pomp, and he was pushed out. Now, the cultural thing would be to claim it back by just getting another in crew, but he doesn't do that. He says, I'm starting a whole new feast. You guys won't even want to come to my feast. And he steps out and he says, I'm not playing this anymore. This is empty. This is useless. And he starts this beautiful banquet with a whole other kind of people. He, the host, did not come to serve the least and the last and the lost. He became one with them. Often we don't see Jesus as that. Actually, even more than that, Jesus' audience would understand that in this culture, he set himself lower than the lowest because the guests bring honor to their host. He puts himself in a position where he receives blessing and honor from the broken ones now, I do not get this. I cannot understand this. When I was younger in the Brethren Church, a guy used to stand up every week and say, thank you, Jesus, we bless you. And as my seven-year-old theological self would say, we don't bless Jesus, he blesses us. But we get to bless Jesus, not by stuff we bring, because we can't, simply by rocking up to his table and putting our hands out to receive from him. That's beautiful. That is this humble host. And that is the whole point of this parable. Disabled people in this story completely disrupt the, what the idea of the kingdom feast is and who the king is. And when disabled people come among us, as we behold one another and let them behold us, we should also experience a similar disruption and see Jesus in a whole new way. Until we see Jesus this way, we will not manage to do any form of inclusion that's kingdom-like. Do you worship a king, Christendom Jesus? Glory, power, prestige, power down. Or do you serve a kingdom Jesus? Bottom, low, margins, up. As Advent approaches don't just think of Jesus coming as a human being from our experience. Look at what kind of human being Jesus was. God incarnate in his vulnerability chose to enter our world as a human, as a baby, the lowest of the low, totally dependent, no words. As an illegitimate baby, shrouded with scandal for the rest of his life. As a peasant, illegitimate baby. As a peasant, illegitimate baby from Galilee. And in John 1, Nathaniel says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It was like the political hotbed revolutionaries that were failed were sent to Galilee. He had no home. He relied on hospitality. He was rejected again and again and again by his people. He was not the cool crew, the powerful ones. And his kingdom came into being, not like the Greek or Roman gods, through power and might, through death and dying. He, king and the kingdom broke into this world in the margins, from the margins, as the margins. And so it is today. It has always been this way through our sacred story God has always chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God has used Micah to shame me and my strength. If we follow the Christendom Jesus, we'll just climb the center places and it'll look Christian, but it won't be kingdom. If we follow kingdom Jesus, he will lead us into the margins, no question. And that's why 24, verse, verse 24 to 33 are about the cost of discipleship. 
Are you prepared to go to the margins? I mean, really, not just for two hours on a Thursday afternoon. Are you prepared to be there and be named as that, to live and inhabit that space? How do we get that in our church community? Because it's a massive heart shift. I love being on the margins. I love it. I thrive there. I live my life in West Belfast with broken people's lives and broken clubs. I find Jesus there. But I find myself climbing back up here to the center again and again. And so Paul writes and he says, plural, if you, usins, have any encouragement of being united with Christ, we've talked about that. If you have any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, we talked about that. Any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, value others above yourselves. Do not look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the mind of Christ, who was God in very nature, and he didn't consider equality of God something to be grasped and climbed after. He made himself nothing, and he made himself a servant, being formed in human likeness, found as a man, he humbled himself and went to death on a cross. Before we even begin to think about what do we do with these kids and adults among us and the ones out there who never dream they can come into a banquet like this, a family like this of belonging, we need a heart change. We need the mind of Christ. And that's a job for the Spirit to do in each one of us and to do together. I just want to invite you. Gareth started by getting people to chat. We're not going to chat. And this is always uncomfortable. I want you to turn around and just look and let your gaze linger as you look around the room. Can you behold one another? in the spirit. See, inhabits the spaces among us and between us. I'm just going to invite you to turn and look now. Behold one another. I have the vantage point. I'm at the front. I can see you. Friends, I am a church member. I am always grateful for the membership of a church. It's a really special thing to be protected and in this moment, as I behold you and you behold each other, I can't speak for you, and so I speak for myself, but I invite you to join in your hearts and my words. I commit to be a member of this church. I commit not just to receiving it and having my name on a list somewhere. I commit to member you. I choose to member you and to receive your membering of me. I choose to love you. I choose to encourage you and to honor you. I choose to see something in you and celebrate it and elevate it and love it and thank God for it. I choose to draw alongside you and weep. I choose to forgive you when you hurt me. I choose to love you and to member you. I wonder, can you do the same for me? I wonder, can you member my son? And I wonder, can you let him member you in this banquet that is beautiful in the kingdom of God? I think we've gone on so long, I'm sorry. Um, Ellen, I think our guys are going to come up and sing. Um, but before we do, I want to just pray. And all I want to pray is that, Lord, we come empty-handed to the table. And we dare Jesus to say that we bless you. 
We receive from the abundance that you have for us. Not just for us, but through us to one another. Spirit, inhabit this community. Birth in us a massive imagination for what it means to be the church, for what it means to be your people who are one in Christ. May we look at the social divisions that are out there. May they grieve us and may we be intentional about going out and reconciling them and making sure they are reconciled in here. Again, we name silently among you in this space, the ones who have catalyzed this conversation, the individuals, we honor them and we lift them among us. And we ask in this moment that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven.